This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. I'm very happy to welcome everyone to the Moraine Valley Library. Um, This is our second event that's part of our One Book, One College uh, program. This is a panel discussion entitled The Cycle of Stuff. Just as a reminder, on November 6th, I do believe, we're doing a showing of Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, right here in this space. There's no charge for that, so um, I hope to see many of your faces there. I will do quick intros, and then we can begin. Um, I want to begin by thanking John Nash from uh, the speech department for uh, moderating our panel today. To his right is Scott Murdoch from Biology, Anatomy, General Smart Science Guy. To his right is Michelle Zorowski, also from uh, Biology Anatomy, also generally smart science whiz and leader of our green initiative on campus. Um, So it's it's great to have her on the panel. And to her right is Jana Svek, who is in earth science, teaches environmental environmental sciences, and goes snorkeling and scuba diving in the pond in the nature area, which I always think is way cool. So, uh, with that, we have a great group of uh, people together to, to cover these issues, and I'll turn it over to John. Thanks, everyone, for coming today. Thank you, Troy. Uh, first of all, thank you for coming today. Who here, raise your hand, who here has read the book, the one that we're discussing? Did you have a pass? Garbage Land. Garbage Land. Only a couple. We do have it in our bookstore. It's an amazing book. So some of your classes might require you to read it. But if you are a reader and just interested, um, it really enlightens you on what's going on in the world right now, especially with garbage and recycling. Um, so if that interests you, please, please, please pick it up. Uh, do it in your spare time reading if your classes aren't making you read it. Um, but what we're going to be doing today is we have a few questions for our panelists, and they'll be giving their inputs. And if you have questions, um, I'm going to ask you to hold them to the end, but make a mental note of them so you don't forget them. And then at the end of our panelist discussion, then we will entertain your questions and see uh, what you're curious about and what we can help you with. So um, the first question, uh, we'll start off with Yana down there at the end. Uh, If you've read The Garbage Land, it does state that Americans produce about 4.5 pounds of trash per day. What do you feel is the one consumer product that really impacts our environment the most? I think that would, I'd have to say, disposable products. I know that encompasses a lot of things, but if you think of, um, this is always the one I use, for example, toilet bowl cleaners where the brushes pop off and they flush down the toilet, (laughs) Uh, things like that, Uh, prepackaged items. So if you buy um, cheese slices, not only do they come in a packaged seal or cheese stick for kids, they also come in every individual cheese stick is is packaged up in plastic. So I think um, probably the biggest consumer product, again, that impacts our environment that causes the most amount of trash is Disposable, and that's the way that we've gone in the last 10 years. Disposable cloths, disposable diapers, of course, has you know been a big one. Disposable wipes, um, paper towels. Nothing is reused anymore. So I would say that would be the biggest. Those are great, great examples. Um, And I'm sure a lot of you have those products at home that all of a sudden got you thinking, oh, maybe I shouldn't use that product anymore. Michelle, what do you think? What do you think is one of the most uh, overused consumer products that affects our environment? 
I think one of my biggest pet peeves is plastic bottles, drinking water. Um, in the United States, even though plastic bottles can be recycled, only 24% actually get it to the recycling center. The rest of them are thrown in a landfill. And some of the issues, there's um, a lot of issues that are associated with plastics and the breakdown of them, but um, I always like to relate things back since I teach biology to the health of the individual and thinking about what is in plastics and how that affects our own health. If you guys don't know, those plastic water bottles are only a one-time use thing, and after you use them once, you're not supposed to refill them and use them over again because what happens is the plastic actually starts to break down with every use beyond the first one. Some of the things that go into the, um, or leach from the plastics are things like what are called dioxin. Dioxin is a known carcinogen. There are other known carcinogens that go along with the breakdown of those plastics. Like for example, like I have the, uh, benzene and vinyl chloride. Those are others that are put into plastics to help make them. Another one is called phthalates. Phthalates are what make plastic water bottles flexible. So any plastic that you have that is flexible, it includes things like when you take a shower every day, your plastic shower curtain, you're breathing in phthalates. When you go and you get in your car after a hot day, the dashboard, it has a bunch of phthalates that are then in the air that you're breathing when you get into your car. Uh, phthalates are found in almost any flexible plastic. So a lot of the toys that kids play with or toys that you give to an infant that they chew on, a lot of those uh, teething toys, they have phthalates in them. And some of the things that phthalates do, there's a myriad of things. One is that it affects our reproductive development. And that's a big one, especially if we're giving children phthalates or pro products that have phthalates in that, that's going to affect their reproductive development. Now, there's a bill um, that's out there right now that's trying to ban things like phthalates and another thing that's in hard plastics, which is called bisphenol A or BPA. And I'm sure you've heard a lot, heard a lot about things that are BPA-free now. Um, those are things that they're actually bringing to Congress and saying, we want to outlaw putting them in any products for children. But what about products for adults? Why don't we, if we know that these things contain known carcinogens or things that disrupt our natural processes, why do we stand for that and why do we keep these things in our products? So I think um, there's other issues with plastic bottles, too. Um, I, if we uh, looked out into the North Pacific Ocean, it's called the North Pacific Gyre, and in there, there's actually a fake island. It's 14 miles wide, and it is mostly made up of plastics that we have thrown away. Now, plastics, what they look like is clear plastics look like a lot of organisms that animals in the ocean eat. So, like, jellyfish are food for a lot of organisms. Those jellyfish get eaten by other things. Well, plastic and jellyfish, they kind of look the same. So a lot of organisms will actually eat the plastics thinking they're jellyfish, and then those toxins travel through them, and they go through the entire ecosystem. Well, how does that make our way back to us? What we find is that it's kind of like the same thing with our own ecosystem, that those plastics, when we throw them out and they start to degrade, all of these toxic and carcinogenic things go into the earth, and that soil then is taken up, the nutrients are taken up by plants. Now nutrients can be good and nutrients can be bad, like all of these toxins. So they go into the plants, and then organisms eat the plants, and then we eat the organisms, they eat the plants, or we eat the actual plants themselves. And what happens is those toxins then make their way back from your plastic water bottle back into your body just through your food system. The other thing that happens, too, is that plastics also suck up heavy metals and other toxins. Now, some of these heavy metals, what they are is they're non-fat, or they're fat-soluble. So that means that they are absorbed into your fat. 
what happens is after years and years and years, these things that are fat-soluble, they get to a critical mass in your body, and then they end up causing diseases like cancers, for example. Um, what happens also is that plants, whatever nutrients that they suck up, the organisms that eat plants, they take in all the toxins that the plants took up. Now, the next level consumer, they eat the organism that ate the plants. They get not only the toxins of the organism they ate, they got the toxins that the plants absorbed. And it keeps going higher and higher with every level. It accumulates and it magnifies, and what we call that is biomagnification. Well, where are we? We're way up here. So we get all the toxins of every organism that we've eaten and every organism that the organisms we've eaten have eaten. So if that makes sense, it means that we get a ton of toxins in our bodies, which is why in our world, one in four people in the United States get cancer and one in two people, or one in two men get cancer. So if you don't think that there's a relationship between the plastic bottles that we're throwing away or those plastic bags that you're given at the grocery store, there absolutely is. That affects your health. So every time you take a plastic bag or you use a plastic water bottle, I want you to think twice about cancer. And the plastic bags actually go back to what Yana was saying. That is a non-reusable product where you could easily carry a cloth bag to the grocery. All right. Scott, how about you? What do you think uh, affects us? Hello. Plastic's easy to pick on, but Michelle covered it quite well, so um, kind of overshadowed by uh, the plastic phenomenon is the old-fashioned paper phenomenon. Uh, that paper is uh, a large component of garbage and landfills of both private residents as well as business. Um, global use of paper, uh, for a few statistics, is expected to increase by about 60% in around the next 12 years. So it's already pretty high, and most of the paper is used and consumed by countries with uh, relatively uh, high levels of income. It seems that the amount of paper used by countries is related or correlated to the average individual's income. So most paper these days, and by paper I also include paperboard and cardboard boxes and other derivatives of wood and trees, uh, the largest consumers are the United States and Western Europe. Uh, however, China and India are sharply on the rise in paper consumption, and around the year maybe 2013 or 2015, China is expected to overtake the United States uh, in regards to the amount of paper that's used. Uh, incidentally, if you care to hear a number, the, uh, by around the year 2020, that's expected that the global paper consumption will be about 600 million tons of paper per year. So it really is a lot of paper. Uh, I don't, it's hard to visualize or imagine exactly how much paper that is uh, or how, my, how many trees <laughs> had to be sacrificed in order to you know, kind of obtain that paper. Contrary to popular belief, a lot of the paper that's being uh, you know, used these days is not from a recycled <coughs> source. I don't have an exact percentage, but I would estimate maybe about 20 to 30% of the paper being used is, is, uh, has been used before or, or is being recycled. But... Uh, you know, the vast majority still comes from uh, good old-fashioned trees, and the trees, of course, you know, have to be cut down <laughs> in order to obtain the paper. Um, the first, uh, the two largest uses of paper are just paper for printing and writing. That comes in at number one. Uh, the computer printers use a lot of paper. It seems an excessive amount of paper. Sometimes people need a phone number off the screen, so they'll click print, and three pages will come out <laughs> in order to obtain the phone number. So excessive amounts of computer paper, fax paper, uh, 
wrapping paper. Uh, this does not include newspaper. That's a separate item. So this is just writing and, um, you know, mainly writing and printing paper. Coming in a close second, probably about to pass uh, printing and writing paper, is, is boxes and containers. Uh, so many products that we use have, are, are containerized. Oftentimes the consumers, that's part of the part of the fun fun of having a new product is you get to open it and you get to you know break open the paper packaging or, or the wrapper the Christmas paper <laughs> uh, which wraps the cardboard which wraps <laughs> something else inside of it so you have these multi levels of packaging uh, much of it plastic but also a great uh, indeed a great amount of it uh, comes from paper it comes from trees uh, newspapers uh, themselves come in third which is uh, uh, about a quarter, just uh, printing and writing and uh, boxes are about the same. They're at about 100 million tons apiece. Uh, newspapers coming in at about 40% of that. Uh, newspapers seem to me uh, like a wasteful form of using paper. It kind of lasts a day, <laughs> kind of by definition lasts a day, and some of them are pretty bulky, pretty heavy, and a lot of it's not really even read. So what a shame to kind of consume all these trees and use all this paper. Uh, for a day and then it's gone and, and you kind of do many people do the same thing again tomorrow uh, uh, 365 days a year and then the next year begins so there's a lot of paper consumption that's kind of not really required uh, these days with you know the expansion of computers it's fairly easy to obtain your news you know electronically uh, which of course has its own benefits and, and you know advantages and disadvantages but um, as far as newspapers go it seems like it's rather wasteful to you know, subscribe to a newspaper and, and get the news every day when maybe you could share a newspaper or get it electronically or use the newspaper at the library. So many solutions to everybody getting their own newspaper. And really, what percentage of the newspaper does any one person really read? So right there, it's probably a low percentage, so it kind of emphasizes the excess and the waste and that trees really had to die. Trees that were 20, 30, 40 years old went into making that paper that we only really use for a morning or less than a day. And we don't even use all of it for a morning or less than a day. So it seems kind of a shame for an educated, relatively educated society to kind of blatantly go about wasting a precious natural resource, which involves killing trees. Did you want to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to add to that. And then how much of that is even recycled? I mean, we hope that most people, if they read a paper, you know, after they're finished, they'll pass it to someone else or that they will recycle it. But how many of you or other people throw it in the trash? Or the same thing with um, package material. If you order something, and it may be one small little product, but it's packaged in a huge box with all sorts of other wasteful and and uh, very um, unenvironmentally friendly boxes like those little styrofoam which have their own chemicals involved in those. So that's another whole part of the paper issue. Oftentimes the boxes are intentionally made larger than the product to emphasize that they're big and they're, they're just as large as the competitor. Uh, sometimes you've seen cereal boxes where the cereal really only you know, fills up about three-quarters of the box, but they made the box smaller, it wouldn't look as impressive, or it would seem to the consumer that they were getting less product for their money. So, um, you know, it's kind of blatant waste of paper uh, for economic gain. It's kind of a shame that uh, this is what it's come to in America. Uh, some of the other problems associated with the use of paper is, of course, that trees have to die, 
in order to, um, to produce the paper. And trees uh, absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And as you may know, carbon dioxide is, a green, is the primary greenhouse gas, which kind of traps heat around the Earth and to a certain degree or not causes the Earth's atmosphere to warm up. So every time we cut down a tree, we're essentially cutting down an oxygen absorber. <laughs> I'm sorry, a carbon dioxide absorber, which has the potential to offset some carbon dioxide that's being generated elsewhere on the planet. So it's kind of like a double whammy. You're cutting down a living organism, which is essentially you know, helping our situation. Uh, and then you cut down the organism to use it in a, in a non-essential manner, like a newspaper or an ex extra big cereal box. Also, by cutting down trees, you uh, decrease the amount of available trees for wildlife. Uh, cutting down old-growth forests and even uh, secondary forests, you're essentially decreasing the amount of trees in the environment, which decreases the amount of birds and insects and other wildlife that the trees would, would otherwise be able to support. Humans are really not alone on this planet, and we're really quite dependent on the other organisms in which we share it with. And by kind of bullying our way through life uh, at the expense of other organisms, we really, in effect, are hurting our own society and civilization. So really, we need to expand our consciousness to understand that these other organisms, whether they're bugs or spiders or, or trees, that we really do, to some degree, kind of um, need them on the planet. And it's... Uh, by offsetting certain portions of the ecosystem, it has kind of a domino or a sequential effect, cascading effect, where one thing leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Uh, and cutting down entire forests is certainly uh, a market, will have a market effect on an ecosystem and everything that used to live there. Uh, lastly, uh, as far as the problems associated with <coughs> high amounts of paper use, are the contaminants in which paper mills uh, expel into the environment. This is uh, not quite as publicized as some of the other aspects of, of paper use, but the mills themselves in generating nice, pretty white paper, cutting the wood to size, etc., etc., they, um, they also are pol polluting the air and the water around them, which usually are in kind of nice areas, you know, wooded, forested areas in the first place. So these are kind of, uh, you know, they're contamination centers in otherwise kind of beautiful areas. So um, the use of paper, I think, is one that could easily be reduced by each and every citizen in America, all college students and teachers. We just have to be aware of what we're doing and really uh, accept our responsibility for being alive and being a person on planet Earth. And it's not just a playground and a fun ride all the way to the grave. You have to be responsible for your actions. Okay, thanks, Guy. Just a quick review. Um, we do have some of the overused... Um, consumer products, which would be the non-reusable products that Yana talked about, the plastics that Michelle talked about, and the overuse of paper that Scott talked about. Michelle, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on this one. Um, the title of this panel is The Cycle of Stuff. What natural cycles are interrupted by our overuse of these products? Well, I think Scott kind of talked about one of those natural cycles that gets disrupted is that we rely on the trees for the process of photosynthesis, and as we get rid of the trees, we disrupt that. But also, in thinking about just the production of stuff, like the, whether we're talking about the production of paper or we're talking about the production of plastics, um, I think we've gotten to a very strange mentality that we just think, well, we can use paper and then we can recycle it so that's okay because I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna recycle it or a bottle it's okay to use it because it can be recycled 
But what we really don't think about is that in the creation of paper or the creation of plastics, as well as in the recycling of those things, what happens is, is that they release all kinds of toxins. So, for example, in the production of plastics, um, two toxins that they release are sulfur, sulfur dioxide and nitrogen um, oxide. What those guys do is they're released in the air as they go up into the atmosphere and they combine with water, and when they come down, they cause acid rain. You know, acid rain doesn't really affect us because you don't walk outside and you feel like, like today, I'm sure none of you guys walked outside and felt your skin burning from acid coming down, right? So it doesn't really affect us in terms of feeling it, but who feels that, feels that are the decomposers in our system. Now let's think about decomposers. What if we got rid of decomposers? If we got rid of decomposers, guess what starts to pile up? Waste of organisms as well as dead organisms. Now, what kind of ecosystem would that be? Would you want to live in a place where dead and waste of things started to just pile up everywhere around you? Ew. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of disgusting. So what we're doing in using, even using our first round of just using paper and using plastics or recycling those things, we put these things in the atmosphere who hurt the lowest level organisms that are going to do all of the probably most important things in our ecosystem. So that's one, one example. Uh, did you want to add or um, regarding the cycles? What cycles are interrupted? I know you talked about some, so I don't know if you wanted to add or not. Uh, I could chime in and add just a, a bit here. Uh, the water cycle is definitely affected. Um, the uh, garbage land book goes into a fair amount of detail of the leached uh, leachit as it's pronounced. The, as water runs through a landfill, it uh, dissolves stuff, chemicals from the landfill become dissolved in the water and then this water ultimately will flow into the groundwater and kind of be incorporated into the natural cycle of water. So undoubtedly building a monstrous landfill, which surprisingly can get to be about as tall as a 22-story building, that's uh, quite a pile of garbage. You have to expect that the water that will be running through that pile of garbage is going to dissolve some of those chemicals. and you know, everything is connected to everything, so the water will then enter the, the natural system again with these uh, toxic compounds that have come from people's garbage. Uh, do you ever wonder, like, all the stuff people throw out? It's just, it's kind of rather anonymous, but uh, it's usually, na a lot of it's nasty stuff, and a lot of it is water-soluble. So as the water drains through the, the landfills, these compounds, which otherwise wouldn't really be found in the environment at all, are becoming quite common. Uh, also described in the book is that the landfills uh, operators, uh, the waste management companies, are, uh, I believe, they're required to monitor this waste uh, water, this water leach it from the landfills for 30 years. Well, the landfill is going to be leaching things into the water for far greater than 30 years. It's probably barely begun <laughs> at the 30-year point. So uh, we're leaving quite a quite a messy situation for our children to deal with when really it would be nice to leave our children with uh, something nice and kind as opposed to something dirty and scummy, something that they'll have to put money into themselves in order to uh, kind of rectify. Okay, thank you. Um, I don't want anyone to leave here scared and depressed. We've talked about how cancerous and how deadly and how uh, disruptful all of these overuse of products are. And so the next question I want to throw out to the panel, and uh, Yana, we'll start with you on this one, is what can we do to start fixing some of these problems? What can we change? That's the good news. So you yeah, don't we have need to some leave good news here because there is a lot of things that we can do now. I guess the bad news is it does take 
a lot. You know, it, it's not going to be. It might change your lifestyle a little bit, not too much, just impact it a little bit. But for example, um, with the disposable products and prepackaged products that I was talking about, that is all not necessary. That is out of convenience. Now we've all become very busy. You know, um, mo in most families, mothers and fathers both work. Everyone has a bit of busy schedule, children involved in lots of different activities. So there is a lot um, going on as a student. You have multiple courses, a job. So you've got a lot of different things pulling you in different directions in your life. But so most of these products that we buy is simply for convenience. So, you know, we don't have to, if you use a, a, a rag, well, you'd have to wash that over and over. So instead, just paper towel, clean up tossed in the garbage. Um, I think if people change their lifestyle so that they take a little bit more time and go back to uh, the way it was before these products, I think everyone was able to survive then. <laughs> um, so just, I think, changing your habits a little bit. Every little part makes a difference. Um, but it would take a little bit of choice on your part. So instead of buying paper towel, you could buy a uh, cloth, a washcloth that you could use, you know, for two months and maybe have to throw it away instead of every time use a sheet of paper towel or or diapers um, or uh, toilet bowl cleaners. You can probably use a plastic toilet bowl cleaner instead of flushing away the, the end part. So I think just um, how do we fix it? It's a little bit of a change of a lifestyle and it needs, the consumer needs to um, think about the choices that they make and the impacts that the choices make on the environment and uh, it is fixable. Okay. Michelle, would you like to add sure. any uh, um, ways that we can fix sure. what we're harming? Um, I think one of the phrases for the environmental movement has always been reduce, reuse, recycle. And if we go back to what the importance of those words mean and the order that they come in, it really comes in the order of things we should be doing. One is reduce. And so before we get to the recycle or the, re the reuse or the recycle, we really should reduce what we're using. And like Yana said, I think it's just a lifestyle change. We are very brainwashed into thinking we need this stuff. Um, the plastic industry, in, back in 1993, they spent $18 million to say how good plastics were and how much we needed them. So there was information all over the place, all over the news, all over the media, in your commercials, and even infused into TV shows as well as movies that said, you need this plastic stuff. So if it's bombarding you from every angle, yeah, you start to believe it. But I think we are smarter than that. We can start to think, okay, if there is this stuff that is toxic to us, and to our environment, maybe we can say, you know what, I don't want that stuff. I want to do something different. And we can start to reduce our need for these disposable products that make our lives convenient. Is convenience better than your health? I really think that convenience is not better than my own health. And like I tell people, I tell my friends too, pick one thing that you can do, one behavior you can change today and do that behavior. And whether it's something simple like buying a reusable bottle, instead of using plastic water bottles and keep spending money on those. Um, if you guys don't know, plastic, uh, the water that's in a plastic bottle, it costs about $10 per gallon. So we're complaining about the cost of gas, but you're going to go and spend about $10 per gallon on water. That's kind of ridiculous when you can walk down the hall and you can get it for free. 
So, yeah, maybe this bottle is $19, and you go, ooh, that's a lot of money. But, okay, add up that if you buy 10 bottles of water from the vending machine, guess what? You've just bought one of these reusable bottles, and you can use it for years. The other thing about our water, there's a big misconception that the plastic industry has kind of put out there and into our heads is that tap water is unhealthy. We are very, very fortunate. We have one of the most healthy uh, filtration systems in the world, being from the Chicagoland area. And so when you go, oh, no, our, water bo our, bottled, uh, our tap water is bad for us, it's absolutely not true. And if there is some kind of taste in there that you don't like, it might just be this brainwashing thing that you've got in your head that you really don't like. You can go out and buy a Brita filter, and that will filter some of the other things that aren't filtered by our original water system. Um, only about 40% of, uh, sorry, 40 of bottled water is actually just tap water stuck in a bottle. So you're paying $2 for the same thing you can go and get for free. So I think that's kind of an interesting thing that we don't know about. Um, so, you know, like I said, just take one behavior, make a change in it. And a lot of times if you think about what you're doing with that behavior, it'll actually make you feel good in the long run. You're doing something really beneficial for your own health as well as you're doing something really beneficial for the environment. So some kind of takeaway message for you guys. Um, thanks, Michelle. Yana, you wanted to chime in? One of the or two other things. First of all, you mentioned about Chicago water. It's also rated the best tasting water, <laughs> one of the best tasting waters. Um, and then also, I think what Michelle was just saying, I just wanted to add, you as a consumer, you're responsible, you know, for educating yourself. You should care about what you're drinking. You should, you know, be educated about what is in, uh, just for the sake of your own health, if anything. Um, and the health of, you know, your children down the road or uh, other generations. So I think every consumer should become educated about the products that they're using, not only what is in the product, but where did that product come from, which is a whole other topic. <laughs> right. Scott, what do you think we can do to fix this problem? Maybe a better term than actually fix the problem would be to attempt to avoid it in the first place. And um, I think, as Michelle mentioned, one of the best uh, ways to avoid this uh, well, excessive amounts of garbage is just to reduce the amount of garbage that each individual creates. So you really have to develop an awareness as to your habits. Do you really throw a plastic water bottle in the garbage? Did you throw your old homework away in the garbage, uh, you know, as opposed to putting it in a recycle bin? I think most people are kind of surprised when they start to, you know, become a little more aware as to their habits and they see what they're actually doing. And especially most of you young people out there, you've kind of been brought up in this society, and we're certainly not saying like you're doing, you're knowingly doing anything wrong. Most people don't really realize the consequences of their actions. It's really kind of just coming to light, to, you know, in the in in, uh, in the population. So now that it has come to light, I think it's kind of uh, kind of our responsibility to be aware of what we're doing. Um, and to not just kind of look the other way and kind of once it's in the garbage, who cares about it? These are, these are kind of arguments based on ignorance. And here at a college, I think our main goal is to move away from ignorance and to be more aware of really what's going on. So that's kind of what these discussions, I think, are designed to do, to bring awareness to people. But you really have to employ it in your, in your own life. We can talk about different ways to, to deal with the garbage or whether we should be composting or, or not or how much uh, can we recycle. But I think if we just reduce the amount that we really need in the first place, we wouldn't have to deal with all of those other issues because the, the excess garbage won't even, being, won't even be being generated at all. 
you'd be amazed at really how little a person, how little the little portion of waste that each person really needs to make and still get by and have a happy life. It doesn't have to be a, a kind of leaving a trail of garbage wherever you go, like a like little children playing, leaving a leaving a trail of toys because they don't pick up after themselves. It's kind of like what's happening in America. We're leaving a trail of trash because um, we, we just generate so much of it. So by being aware, uh, how many times do you go to the garbage can and dump something in? How many times do you really recycle what you should? Do you, do you wash out your yogurt container? I know it's a, it's a hassle to wash out the yogurt yogurt container. It's a lot easier to just throw it in the garbage. But to recycle it, you really have to wash it out and then put it in the proper recycling bin. It does take more energy. It does take more effort. Um, but this is what we have to face up to. Um, it's kind of part of using the product. <laughs> if you really want it, then you should kind of accept the respons- responsibility for it all the way to the end. Uh, so I think the best way that you know individuals really can make a difference is by just being aware of their own habits and then changing them a little bit if it's required for the benefit of the environment. Uh, it's hard to do anything proper if you really don't even know what you're doing. So the first thing is to know what you're doing and then evaluate it and perhaps make adjustments in the behavior if you are leading a kind of wasteful lifestyle. I don't think every human really needs to generate four and a half pounds of garbage every single day in order to be happy and healthy and have a meaningful life. All right, all of your solutions sound so simple and easy. And uh, I think we all know that they're not. It's hard to change. Um, I'll open this question up to all three of you. What do you feel are some of the obstacles that stand in the way between achieving these changes and these fixes that you just talked about. Why aren't we already doing this? We know it. Why aren't we doing it? I think convenience. I think our lifestyle. Uh, we, are, like I said before, we're very busy. We don't have, may not have the time in a day. Well, I'm sure we have the time, but we think we don't have the time in a day to wash out that plastic cup or go, you know, walk all the way to the bathroom and go wash it out and then walk all the way to the other end and throw it in. we got to go. We have to go to one place, the next, to the next. Um, we're very busy. We, As a society, we have very busy lifestyles. Uh, other barriers are a lot of people are unaware, I'm sure, some of the stuff about plastic and paper you may not have known. You may not have known that the water bottle that you're drinking from probably was not tested and actually just came from the tap water. So, Or you may not know the impacts that your actions are having on the environment. And hopefully if people become aware and a little bit more educated about your impacts, then you will care a little bit more about what you're doing and, and the products that you're consuming. So I think... A big thing is convenience, people's lifestyle. It's difficult to change. It's difficult to go back, slow down a little bit, or like Scott said, you know, it, it's it's easier to use this product versus this one because it's a little bit more convenient. And then also just unaware and, and maybe not as educated about the project products that you're using. Either. Uh, I think another thing is there's a lot of pressure to have the newest and the latest and the greatest thing and that 
Like, for example, with iPods, you might have an iPod that works perfectly fine, and they come out with these new colored ones. And so now you're like, ooh, I want a purple one. And so now you're like, oh, get rid of my old one, and I'll buy this pretty purple one. And part of the problem is, is that we're actually, in our society, we actually praise people who have the newest and the brightest and the coolest thing. And we don't think about, well, that other thing that we had, that white iPod that's five years old, works perfectly fine. That there will be people in the world who would be happy to have that, but for some of us who maybe have more resources, we can buy the newest and the greatest thing. And I think that's a big problem. That's one of those issues that we are so programmed in thinking that unless I have the best and newest thing, I'm not good enough. And Scott and I were talking about this, that a lot of times our happiness is tied to things rather than to people or experiences. And that you think that um, I think Scott was saying that in the 80s there became this culture of shopping as a habit rather than as a necessity, that before that people would go shopping because they needed stuff. Now we go shopping because we want to see what's out there, what's new, what's the prettiest. Recreational shopping. Yeah, and so, you know, and we do. We do. We go shopping now as a way to make ourselves feel good. It's become an activity in our lives, and I'm sure a lot of you guys are probably going, oh, yeah, yeah, sometimes if you're bored, you go, I think I'm going to go shopping, and you get all excited because you're going to see what's new and it's out there, and that makes you feel good. But why does it make you feel good? If you really get down to it, we're programmed. Some The marketing has programmed us into thinking that you have to have the newest thing, that you're not in style. And um, there's a video out there, if you guys, uh, it's a 20-minute video. It's really well made. There's a lot of good research in it. It's called The Story of Stuff. And she did some research into this whole idea of this marketing brainwashing. And um, she makes this point that you go home after a long day of work, you watch TV, you're shown on TV all this new stuff, and you think, I don't have the new stuff, I suck. And then you feel bad about yourself, and then you go shopping, and you buy some of the new stuff, but then you go to work, and months later, you don't have the newest thing, so you feel like you suck again. And then you have to start all over again. So you have to work more to get more stuff. And what are we doing? We're just working to buy stuff? Where, when are we happy? When are we having experiences? When are we actually talking to each other or having a good time with each other? So I think it's kind of an interesting thing. If we really start to analyze what we need versus what we want, um, we might actually find a core of happiness in there. Scott? Um, just maybe adding on to, to what's already being said, um, I think uh, the barrier oftentimes is kind of this idea that we're, we're supposed to be buying things that's kind of part of American culture all the commercials on the computers and the TV telling us the new products and kind of making us feel a little bit inept or inadequate if we don't have some of them at least. So, uh, you know, we attempt to go out and, and buy extra stuff that we really don't need. Again, it might satisfy some void temporarily, make you feel a little happy. But maybe you've had this experience. I have, I know, that the thing, that when, I wanna, when I want something, it, it's always, it seems it's better before you get it. <laughs> and, and then you get it, and it kind of goes into your other heap of stuff, and it loses its magicalness. It loses that attractiveness that it originally had. So I think oftentimes it's the people's just the, the, the desire for something, that, that feeling that they want something, that's what keeps people going out and buying a lot of things that they really don't need. So this idea of recreational shopping or just shopping for something to do, it's really uh, detrimental to our society. It, you know, there, nothing really comes of it. You don't really become a better person. You don't learn anything. You don't have any real experience to share. You know, anyone can shop. You know, if you have a couple bucks, you just go out and buy something. It, it's nothing to be happy about. <laughs> 
So it seems like it's a false sense of happiness that we keep striving, but we never quite get happy because we always have to keep buying in order to stay there. So I suspect by just looking at our shopping behaviors and things, uh, do we really need it or, or do we just want it? You really have to differentiate between your own needs and wants. Sometimes we want something so bad we'll tell somebody we need it. Uh, wanting and needing are two completely different you know, states of psychological uh, phenomenon. Uh, so you really have to differentiate. Are you just buying something because you want it? And be realistic. Is it ultimately going to go into your pile of stuff? Are you going to have to rent a little locker to store all your stuff? You don't even have enough room in your house or your apartment to store all of your stuff that you needed so badly. Uh, you really have to be realistic. You know, when you're at the checkout counter with that big cart of stuff, is everything in there really required? Maybe you take another round and through the store and, and drop stuff back off. It sometimes might make you feel good that you're living a simple life, a life of low impact and not leaving a big heavy footprint on planet Earth. It really does have, it, have its, has its own little sense of happiness and it's a real authentic sense of happiness that wasn't just bought at a store because it was on sale. And uh, just touching upon what you all three just said, it seems you are saying that people in the United States, primarily Americans, want all of this stuff compared to, say, people in other countries or our ancestors. Um, would any of the three of you like to comment about why that is? I think in America, uh, actually, our lifestyles, are, we're very fortunate that we don't really have a, for the most part, we have a relatively easy lifestyle. And for the most part, especially in our area, we're, you know, financially pretty secure. And sometimes, you know, we uh, can get a fair amount of money where we have excess money, apparent excess money in order, and so we, have, we, we feel like we have excess money, we should go use it and we should go spend it. So, um... I lost my train of thought, excuse me. <laughs> That's okay. Michelle or Jana, would you like to chime in? And then we'll open it up for questions. Um, well, I think, I think our lifestyle in America, North America, Canada as well, we are among 20% of the population and we use 80% of the world's resources. I mean, we're in a very different category than most of the world. Like Scott said, we live a very different lifestyle than most people. We have the... Uh, luxury of being able to go out and buy stuff we want, not need. Whereas a lot of other people in other countries, they do not have that luxury. Um, they can only buy things if they can't even do that, what they actually need. So I, I think that makes us separate from a, a lot of the rest of the world is that we do have the luxury. We have the economy and uh, the ability to do so. And um, I think that's a big difference. I was going to say, I think another um, issue that we have in terms of our lifestyles are the way our government regulates things. If we think about the European Union, um, some, you know, it's interesting is in the last few years I've been changing what I keep in my house and what I use in my house, what I use in my body, what I put in my mouth. And um, more so it's just because I'm realizing how toxic all of this stuff is and I want to create a healthier environment for myself. I read a book this summer and it talked about the European Union, they've actually banned 287 chemicals that they cannot put in any products, whether it be a food product or a body product. 
and a big difference, there's a different motivation there because the European Union, their government pays for their health care. So it's in their best interest to take all these chemicals out of their products, whereas with us, we pay for our own health care. So if we pay for our own health care, the government, if they're getting kickbacks from companies like plastics who put toxins in our stuff, why should they care about us as individuals? They're not paying for it. And so, you know, this is something, too, that I hope you guys walk away from, is that as you read labels or as you think about even picking up a plastic water bottle, that affects your health. And even though there are limited products available that do not have these chemicals in them, you have a choice. And it's your choice to make a healthy environment for yourself or not to. And I know it's, you know, an easy thing, like Yana said, that our society is based in convenience. And yeah, it's more convenient to just grab the shampoo off the shelf and not take a look at it. But out of the hundred shampoos that are out there, there's two that are not as toxic as the rest of them. And it takes a little bit of research and it takes a little bit of time, but guess what? It's your health. And like I said, one in four people in America get cancer. If we look around this room, that means that if you have a row of four people, one of you is gonna get cancer. And I think that's an absolutely absurd fact and it's absolutely just sad. We have control. And so I hope that you guys walk away from this not feeling sad, but you feel empowered that if you want to keep this stuff out of your environment, you can do something about it, but that's your choice. And if you want to just kind of cop out and say it's inconvenient, then you're choosing your health. So just something to think about, too, that we do have the power to do stuff about it. We have to be more responsible, like I said, for our actions. I think that's another thing. The more educated you are, and there's a lot of resources, just the example, the shampoo. There's a great website. Um, of course, I forgot it. Skindeep.com. Thank you. Uh, Skindeep.com, and it talks about all beauty products, children's products, and it tells you everything that's in them, which one it rates them from the least harmful to the most harmful, and you'd be amazed at what is in simple, everyday products. I mean, you can put whatever you want, you know, if you used uh, Crest or Colgate toothpaste, I mean, or uh, the type of soap that you use. It's, yes, the, the product that's better for the environment and your health may be a little bit more expensive, but, you know, we're talking about cents here when we're, it's actually has an impact on the rest of your life, the health of your life, whether you may potentially get cancer or not. So, um, I think education is the key. And you, you are responsible for your own education. You're responsible to learn about the products that, that you use every day. Well, thank you. Just a quick review. We talked about some of the consumer products that our experts feel really affect our environment and how it disrupts some of the cycles of our natural environment and then ways we can fix it, the obstacles to making those changes, and then how we can empower ourselves to make these changes. So I'd like to open um, the last 10 or so minutes of our panel discussion to questions that some of you might have thought about during the panel or just questions that you might have on your own outside that came from outside the panel. Yeah. Um, I've actually heard that chlorine in water um, is reversed. The question was, is chlorine in water bad for our system? Does anybody want to feel um, that one? One of the things that they use in non-biodegradable products to make them not able to break down is chlorine. And chlorine is actually a stabilizer. So I, I haven't read the research specifically, but just knowing that chlorine is a stabilizer for non-biodegradables, I imagine that what it's doing is taking biodegradable products and stabilizing them so they're not biodegradable anymore. 
and a lot of those then gets into um, bioaccumulation. And so any toxins that are then stabilized by chlorine, if they're in the plants, whoever eats the plants gets that toxin, and then the thing that eats the thing that ate the plants gets all the toxins of everybody under them. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that that might be one of the connections to why chlorine is bad. Other questions? Yeah. Or are those better for you instead of like, yeah, green products, green? All right. And then, um, like, you know how we have the white, like, you know, like the Windex white? Mm-hmm. Like the Windex okay, just let me repeat the question so everyone can hear it. Um, the question was, they're making a green cleaning products. Are those really any better, or is that just a marketing tool? And what is the difference between, saying using the spray Windexes versus the new wipes they have coming out? Is there a difference well, there? Just the wipes. Think about where the wipes have to go after. Right, but then my question was, like, if you use, like, the spray, and then you would be using, like, um, paper towels. Or lint-free cloth. Yeah, you could (laughs) use cloth or a a very good, like, Windex. This is just vinegar and water. (laughs) There's a lot of websites, too, about natural cleaning products that you know you can make at home. Water and vinegar and baking soda is pretty much all you need to clean your entire house. Um, But uh, water, vinegar, and baking soda. And it's... uh, Yeah, the different ratios, but in general, yeah. Baking soda is a good... um, Yeah, abrasive scrubber. And you, vinegar is an excellent uh, disinfectant. So those are all good products. And then I, you can answer the, uh, your question is no, but the answer is no, I think. And the the green cleaning products, um, you know, what you should do is read your label and find out what's in them. Because I've seen things that say all natural, and if I go to that skin deep, uh, database, it'll say it has a toxicity of nine. So you really have to look and see what's in them, and you've kind of got to know what to look for. So, you know, it's a marketing ploy, as Yana said. You know, it, you just might be falling for something that says all natural or green. Um, things to look for on the label will say biodegradable. If it's biodegradable, non toxic, those are words that are regulated. But when they say all natural, that doesn't. Yeah, mean all natural and green are marketing ploys. They don't have a regulatory body behind them. And one other comment regarding uh, green products in general. Uh, I just read an interesting statistic that said uh, 48%, I think, of Americans polled said that buying green products is good for the environment. And I thought, oh, yeah, they said it was, they mistakenly thought they were good for the environment. And I didn't quite understand because I thought they were good for the environment too. But I think the point of the issue is, is that um, they're just less harmful. <laughs> Green products are still products. So it's best to maybe not use so many products, period. But for the products you need to use, maybe go for something a little less harmful to the environment. But still, if you're just buying a lot of green products, you know, desks that are made with environmentally friendly wood, etc., etc., you're still buying a lot of stuff. It's still uh, stuff, even though it's green. So buying green doesn't mean it's good for the environment. It just means it's less bad for the environment than the typical types of products. Yes? Uh, going back to what she asked about um, green products, I have a two-part question. Um, is Warren Valley going to invest in just purchasing uh, baking soda, uh, vinegar, or really basic uh, disinfectants? And my second question is, uh, with the renovation of the campus, 
um, especially with the student union building, uh, we're you know, trying to go more green, more sustainable. Um, how sustainable is the student union, especially that flat block? My question is it lead to five or All right, just in case you didn't hear the question. There are many facets to it, but the basic gist of the question, if I could paraphrase, is what is Moraine Valley doing to reduce what products we're consuming, most specifically in the new buildings, in the cafeteria, and in the cleaning? Well, I can at least speak to the green products. I know that 95% of our cleaning products and things that you find in the bathroom are non-toxic. So that's actually something that's really good. Um, there have been a lot of initiatives that people have taken of their own accord to just go ahead and start doing things that make sense for our health here on campus. So you guys should be really happy about that because we do have a lot of people who are thinking in your own best interest. Um, in terms of the student union, um, that's probably a bigger question than maybe the three of us can answer. I know that um, we, uh, Scott and I, consulted on the building of the science building, and they did, yeah, and um, Yana too, that the, between the building and the landscaping, we are putting our input into ways they can make things greener. Um, they didn't ask us for our opinion on the student union, so I can't properly answer that. Other questions? All right, would any of our panelists have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I guess I just want to say, um, you know, I hope you guys, again, you walk away with a positive outlook and think that you do have the power to make positive impacts not only on yourself but on the environment. There's another way that you guys can make an, a positive impact is to research your presidential candidates as well as your local candidates and make sure you get out there and vote. Um, one of the things that I'm having my students do this semester is write to a legislator. If you don't like something that's happening in your environment, your local environment, write to your local legislator or write even to a senator or representative or the president. The more that we write to those people who have the power, the more that things get done. Because if they hear from us that we want things changed and we do it in a critical mass, things will change. Um, in 1993, only about $97 million was dedicated from the federal government to breast cancer. But you know how many breast cancer organizations are out there now? Over $300 million is given by the federal government now. And it was all by people like you and me who started to write letters and say, we're not going to stand for breast cancer anymore. We want more money from the government. So we do make a difference. We just have to get together, and we have to be a little bit vigilant about it, and we have to write those letters. So let your legislators know. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you for coming. Yes, thank you so much. I thank you all so much for taking your noontime hour to be with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.